Welcome, lovers of music and life. Sound and Light is brought to you by the Vast Institute and Jim Cohen Sherpa. Our hosts, Jim Cohen and Michelle Sherman, both career leaders in design and human development areas, have created this series to inform, entertain, and educate you about the powerful influence of music in designing and leading happy, healthy lives. They sincerely believe that there is magic in the music. Today, they provide inspiration and strategy to leaders of all stripes. In their efforts to develop their business and brain trust by cultivating the invention of new ideas, concepts, and approaches in an enlightened and intentional manner, our series highlights their journey and insights about the sustaining power of music and how it's tied to their personal lives. Lives focused on creativity, imagination, and supporting the personal fulfillment of others. Welcome back to Sound and Light, where we join Michelle and Jim explaining how they navigated the naughty 1970s. In the 1970s, we believed sex was safe and drugs were okay. I do not necessarily agree with that now because it was a moment in time. <laughs> but it was an explosion of exploration of all different dimensions. Timothy Leary and, and Terrence McKenna and Richard Alpert, Ram Dass, and everybody going, okay, there's a lot more than what we're being told. Let's find it. So hallucinogens were part of it. And the Grateful Dead were part of that little hippiedom, that resistance, that anti-war movement, that, listen, we, we're here and we don't have to listen to a thing you say but we're not going to hurt or harm you. Just come and live, live with us, love us, hang out and be cool. Um, Jerry Garcia was one of the few people who did not prevent people from taping any of his concerts. He wanted people to have the music. This was so amazing because I didn't realize, you know, hey, this might not be going on forever. So I was in Winterland. My boyfriend went to Eugene, Oregon to go to law school. And he said, hey, let's go see the dead on New Year's Eve at Winterland. We'll have the weekend, we'll have the week, we'll have some friends. We invited a friend, Seth, with us. So we got to see them in Winterland. They closed Winterland a year later. The new riders were there. And I didn't, and then I saw Jerry in May before he passed away here in Seattle. You don't realize how precious it is to hear live music. When Jerry passed away, all the people who didn't make it to that concert here in Seattle, or all the people who were not able to make things make sense after he passed away, you know, you just stop and you think to yourself, hey, it was just a moment in time, but it was a precious moment in time. You know, you stop and think about how pivotal it was. I still speak to the folks that I've gone to these concerts with. Uh, I'm still in touch with those folks because we share this love of music. And for me, the whole era was about being guided, you know, stairway to heaven. Let's talk about making out. Okay, because I said in the 70s, sex was safe. And so there was a lot of free love. Well, what did that mean? That meant that most teenagers were erotically involved, that, that there was a lot less shame, and that people were exploring their sexuality for the first time overtly. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, okay, we're not all the same. And we're not all, like, vanilla or chocolate, or we're not all this or that. We're, like, and so it was just this this magnificent expression of innocent love and sweetness 
of course, there are people who take advantage of that. But I have to tell you, I was there and all I can say is it was a lot of fun and there was a lot of love and a lot of goodness. I've never been into the group thing, but that's okay because I always wanted to know who was attached to what I was kissing. But there was this sense of ability to connect with people uh, in a variety of ways, whether it was psychedelically or emotionally or or erotically, and that there was all of this life that we were kept from. We were going to find it and we were going to experience it. We didn't want to hurt or harm anybody, but we weren't going to be kept from pleasure. We weren't going to be kept from joy. We weren't going to be kept from love. We weren't going to be kept from ourselves. And I think that's what that confluence of the war, the draft, and of course back then, for those of you who don't know, there was a draft. And when you're drafted, everybody has to go. So guess what? The war ends a lot sooner because it's not just our children and our young people who need the job so badly that they're going to take a look at that. Instead of wanting it as a magnificent career, which I have family members in the military and love the fact that they're career people. I can count on them. They're right there. But this draft truly equalized the fact that a lot of people did not want the war. Whereas when you have a volunteer army, guess what? you may just be forcing a certain segment of the population and they take the brunt of it. And guess what? Uh, what was that? Uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival? Fortunate son. That ain't me, babe. <laughs> and if it ain't me, babe, then I'm going to, you know, have to go and serve. The great so, son. Right. So, you know, this was a renaissance of consciousness. I would say a lot of people, and it wasn't just, oh, well, they were... They were stoned. Or the, it wasn't that at all. It was a seeking of that which, whether it was families or religion or governments or whatever that had been kept from people because it was deemed unsavory, immoral. You couldn't control people. If you can't shame them, if you can't uh, frighten them, you can't control them. Who hasn't made out to Stairway to Heaven? Everybody made out to Stairway to Heaven. If not, you know, more serious stuff. And, you know, it kept me moving towards the West. You know, there's a feeling I get when I look to the West. I got out of New York as soon as I was graduated. I needed something else. Yep. And in New York's a great place. It was just my family and some of the issues I had to work through. Also Bruce Springsteen. Who didn't grow up uh, thinking Bruce Springsteen was a folk hero? I mean, you know, and born to run. <laughs> These were epic things that people were exploring. And I, I know that it's absolutely essential. You know, rock and roll during the 70s, it gave me hope. It was inspiration. Tom Petty explained to me what, like I said, what boys are really thinking, but in a very sweet and honest way. I just want to know the truth, Tom. You know, those are the sorts of things that are so precious, just so precious. What did you learn about romance from rock and roll? I'm yeah, just I was just thinking about that. Because it was There's, the 70s. Yeah, so for me, it was the 60s. There's a string of people. I was just thinking about this in terms of the themes that we sketched out a little bit for today about words and to some extent, mystery. Mm -hmm. So in this era, we started to listen to the lyrics more. You know, rock and roll went from, I don't know, the Kingsman to... Uh, uh, you know, Louie Louie to, to from Bill Haley. Yeah. Yeah. To, to Dylan and, and other people that could actually write, you know, really compelling music. And so I was a big fan of West coast music uh, in the form of the birds. 
for one thing, they were like folk musicians that became rock musicians and obviously copped onto Dylan and played Dylan's songs and evolved more past that. And Buffalo Springfield, who came along in L.A. Uh, with great songwriters and great guitar players, you know, too many of them in one band to actually live together. So for me, like, there's there's an old Buffalo Springfield song called Rock and Roll Woman that is just like the most beautiful song about a woman in rock and roll, uh, written from a, a, a man's standpoint. It's also a beautiful piece of music. And so we became reverential around those guys and that music. And fast forward to the Fillmore being in existence and in 1969. East and West. East and West, right. Fillmore East opening was a big deal for us. One, it was a small venue, you know, it held like 3,500 people and it had a killer sound system. And it used to be the Village Theater and then it flipped over to being the Fillmore. Mm -hmm. In 1969, Literally within, um, I don't know, three weeks of their playing Woodstock, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young played the Fillmore East for a weekend. And we went to see the late show on Saturday night. These guys were our heroes. One, they were already famous, but they were like 22 years old. They had already been in Buffalo Springfield and the Birds. And so what? here's what I remember. Being glued to the lyrics, like how can you not listen to Sweet Judy Blue Eyes and, and think about a relationship, a woman, a man, and all the stuff we go through. The place, everybody leaned into the music so much, you could hear a pin drop in there. It was, it was just like reverence to the music. They played till about five in the morning. Like you walked out at dawn. They played everything they knew and more. It was this communal spirit of being in the room with legends. It was a pivotal thing for me to witness that and see the power of music, but also the power of artistry and poetry. Mm -hmm. And they liked each other then. That's before they got completely nuts with each other. And they still managed to make music for a long time after that with each other in various forms. So communal spirit, men working with men and pouring their hearts out in, in very sweet ways. And the, the power of the poetry, you know, was amazing in that era. It went away for a while. I think it's coming back. They're, we're paying more attention to lyricists and the quality of lyrics again, which is good. I think that you're absolutely correct, Jim, in the power of the poetry. You know, Jim Morrison was a poet. Tom Petty's a poet. You know, you stop and you think about Jackson Brown and Glenn Fry and, and Jeff Lynne and all of the people who write songs and then sing them. I think they became singer-songwriters because they had a lot more control over their artistry. And what they finally figured out is if they could write their own songs, they had a little bit more clout with the record companies because they weren't being given songs and they weren't being made into something. They were in command of their own way of being. And so the singer-songwriter emerged, uh, Dylan and others, from the folk hi history, as, as you pointed out earlier. But I actually, we talked about the industry in our last episode and trying to get around the industry. Uh, won't back down, you know. <laughs> that was written about the record industry or the last DJ. Uh, there are a few of them. And you realize that artistry is something that is constrained for many, not all by the business 
And so at the beginning, it wasn't that heavy a load. Now it's a much heavier load. And so those who were able to blossom in freedom and and back alleys and 10 Mott Street at three o'clock in the morning, because where else would you get good Chinese after you went to a concert? Uh, You know, those people have a little bit more. I'd say understanding of what's possible than those who that go through the record industry or now are being uh, vetted for tomorrow's superstar. I think that one of the things that happened in there, and it's it was probably more about the early seventies. David Geffen showed up, worked his way out of the mailroom, decided to start Asylum Records in L.A. Asylum Records was literally Asylum Records. You know, it was the place where the artist had control and he supported people to be artistic. So he immediately signs Jackson Brown and he signed Joni Mitchell. And I think he eventually signed Dylan because Dylan did that album with the band for Asylum Mm -hmm. and and J.D. Souther. And eventually I think the Eagles were on Asylum when they started. And so he gave them a home and he kept them away from the business side so that they could create in that fertile place, they created powerful music, uh, music that we're still listening to today, you know, and so you get the learning is musicians like artists or any sort of creative person need a fertile ground to thrive. And, And if you take away some of the key elements of that, you get predictable outcomes. They may sell a ton, but it's not artistry anymore. So we were, we had a moment there where people like the Beatles started it with Apple wanted creative control of their careers and their catalogs Mm -hmm. today, bringing us to this moment, you're watching those artists sell their catalogs because one, they've accumulated the value of that catalog of those lyrics of those songs, and they had to stop touring. So they can't make money, but the value still lingered. So they've, you watched David Crosby just sold his, uh, his catalog a couple of days ago. Oh, because really? he needs to live off the money. Yeah, but he wrote all these terrific songs. So uh, Dylan just did it too. These catalogs have tremendous worth <laughs> to them based on the value of the song, the value of the lyric, the power of that music. Mm-hmm. And the lyric lives on forever the same way his holy books do. I mean, who doesn't have an original copy from when they were, you know, in their room and they're 15 years old and they're listening to it? For us, it would have been like a a record album, a vinyl album, a large, a 33 and a third LP when we were growing up. For other people, it was, you know, eight track tapes and they would be looking at their little eight track tape. (laughs) Then there were cassettes. My God, the technology piece of it is the fact that I could just go to my devices and do my own thing now having a symphony that's another thing that's good for humanity having a symphony with you wherever you go is a great idea so right so the the themes the themes today are exploration mystery having music and the experiences that music provided formulate our opportunity to learn about ourselves and the world and also be inspired beyond what was in front of us 
Music saved my life. I was not a, a religious person. Family was not religious. We were very secular. We, we were spiritual in that we believed in goodness, but we weren't going and getting fed uh, nourishing ideas as often as we could have. Right. There was a lot of strife. There was the war. There was pain and suffering. There were you know all sorts of things going on in the world. But the music, you could close the door, put on... Uh, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, put on Tommy, put on Hotel California, put on the Soft Parade, put on Sgt. Pepper, put on, and you could you could go someplace else for 45 minutes each side. And there were a couple of things you'd you would just adapt to. And we, you know, I think the Beatles and everything that we expected from artists and music changed when Sgt. Pepper came out, changed when Jimi Hendrix could play the guitar with his teeth, changed when 500,000 people got together for three days of music, peace and love, and it worked. On a very odd level, it worked. Changed when we said, forget the war, you fight it. Changed. And I just appreciate you bringing up, Jim, how music is a force for those changes because it stays with you and comforts you and provides to you as we talk about the light part of it, the, the joy, the sweetness, the, the ability to grieve, the ability to listen, the ability to empathize, all of those things come to us. And that's what, that's what music provided for me so that I could leave New York knowing that was the best idea for me. To kind of sum it up, you know, music is this powerful reminder. It's, it's always there. And because of our technology today, we have those reminders going all the way back. You just, and, and if you turn on music from the 40s and the 50s and listen to those people pouring their hearts out, the power's still there. And we use that power as inspiration to what we could do in our life. And I think many people do. That is the power of music. That is the power of the sound. And it brings us the light. And for everybody listening, we wish you and yours a very, very joyful, happy, musical life that is uplifted because of sound and light. Our next episode uh, on sound and light will be about how music has changed the world and where we're going from here because it is such a profound idea. We also are taking your comments and your ideas for future episodes, which we very much appreciate. I just want to say, Jim, it is such a pleasure to hear about your experiences because I was just a little further south doing my own thing and kind of showing up where you showed up a few days later or a few years later. And I have to say that there's an enormous amount of goodness, love and community that music provides, whether it was myself going to a concert with a bunch of friends or you finding your way through your musical uh, detective story and adventures and, and spending time with Peter and, and uh, Eric and others, these people had an impact on you because they are the real meal deal. Thank you for all of your input today, Jim. I loved it. Thank you. We will see you at our next episode. Thank you for spending time with us on Sound and Light. We hope this episode has entertained and inspired your creative side. 
For more information about Michelle and Jim, their backgrounds, stories, and the music that fills their lives, visit Michelle at vastinstitute.com and Jim at jimcohensherpa.com. Until next time, enjoy the music in your lives, be well, stay safe, and feel free to reach out to us. <laughs>